You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. You are then placed into just a completely abstract world where you have these shapes floating around in the space. And as you look at them, you trigger different audio stories from both Dr. Devi and Stephanie Hope. And you can hear their stories, which are very powerful. I'm Mark Pawlowski, founder of Mex, and that was Paula Ceballos, my guest on the show today, talking about When We Die, which is a project that she co-created at NYU's interactive telecommunications program with Dana Abrasout and Leslie Ruckman. It's a unique piece of digital work where they've tried to create a safe space in virtual reality for people to come to terms with their own mortality. It's pretty deep stuff, uh, and I'm going to tell you more about that in a moment. But first, we've got an exciting bit of news within the MEX initiative. So for years now, I've been getting emails from employers and candidates who seem to share a common purpose. They're both trying to find like-minded experience design pioneers to work at companies which truly believe in user-centered design principles. Well, we've decided to see what we can do to help with that. And we've created Mex Jobs. Now, Mex Jobs is a curated list of only the most creative, the most inspiring, the best roles in experience design. This is all about quality rather than quantity. We're only going to feature jobs from companies that we know share the values of our Mex community. And just like the community itself, these roles are going to be diverse. It's going to reflect the full breadth of all of those different talents that you need to make better, more user-centered design decisions in the digital world. So you'll be able to find the jobs board in the MEX journal at mobileuserexperience.com forward slash jobs. Uh, we're going to be tweeting them from the at MEX feed account, and we'll also be including links in the weekly email newsletter. We've already invited some of our favorite employers among design agencies and in-house teams to join in the beta program. But if you're looking to hire people at the moment and we've missed you off that list, uh, just drop me an email at designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com uh, and I can see about getting you an invite. The listings are £139 for 30 days uh, and we'll be helping to share your role across all of our MEX community channels, uh, including giving them a shout out on future editions of this podcast. Uh, in fact, we've got a particularly interesting one already for you today. Lindsay Green and Alison Webb at Frankly Green and Webb, uh, who some of you might remember from the wonderful workshops and talks that they've done at several of our MEX conferences, are looking for a design researcher. And if you don't already know their work, They've been doing really interesting things at the intersection of physical and digital experiences with museums and cultural institutions for many years now. Uh, it's a small team, focused, but with some really big name clients like the National Gallery and Bloomberg. And they're not necessarily looking for someone from a background of working with cultural institutions already. Uh, that's the part where they themselves have a wealth of knowledge to help train you up in that space. Uh, but rather, they're keen to find someone with a deep interest in user-centered design research. So if that sounds like it might be your thing, you can find the details at mobileuserexperience.com forward slash jobs. Uh, and do please let them know you found them through Mex. So back to today's interview, um, I, I found this one just fascinating. Death is one of those subjects, particularly in Western culture, which remains taboo. So as an experience design challenge, to, to find a way of helping people come to terms with it, to get them talking to their loved ones about it, I mean, that's a pretty serious thing to take on. Paula Ceballos and her collaborators at NYU did just that with When We Die, taking virtual reality in a whole new direction. 
So we have the usual show and tell, uh, where Paula has brought some very thought-provoking examples along. Uh, then we talk about the When We Die project, get into some of the specifics of that, uh, and also get on to talking a little bit about the history of NYU's ITP program and what might come next in her own career. Enjoy. Well, Paula, welcome to the MEX podcast. Whereabouts are you dialing in from today? I am calling in from Brooklyn, New York. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, How's Brooklyn this morning? Uh, It's good. It's sunny and warm, so... I definitely feel like I'm kind of coming out of hibernation, finally. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. And it's uh, it's great that you're able to take the time and join us for, for being on the, the next podcast. Before we get into a bit of the, the work that you've been doing and your journey to get there, you may know there's a little bit of a tradition on the next podcast that we ask each of our guests to bring something along to our show and tell section. And I've got a feeling um, you've gone above and beyond the call of duty and even bought two items to the, the show and tell. So do you want to fire off with one of yours and we'll uh, have a chat about that and see where we go from there? Uh, definitely. So I think the the first one I brought is this project I really love. It's called Surface Tensions. And the the kind of tagline for it is a ghost story for the connected age. And it's basically an interactive narrative installation that is set in this dining room, very inconspicuous dining room. It looks regular, nothing out of the ordinary. But as people sit through it and kind of walk through it, this narrative starts happening where you can hear the conversation between two people. And there's three kind of branches for it. So one is just the regular, you know, dinner conversation that you would have any day. And then there's another version that's a passive aggressive conversation. And then the third one is just a full on aggressive conversation. And based on what people do in the space, whether or not they pick up a plate or a cup or they sit down or they don't, they actually fear the conversation from these two quote-unquote imaginary people to go in each of the three different routes. How's the conversation from the the third parties present for those who are, are sitting there at the table? Is it something which is kind of quietly in the background or are they wearing headphones and able to, to hear the conversation in full detail? It is quietly, quietly in the background from what I understand. I actually have not been able to see it in person, which I really wish I could, but I've seen, I've spoken to the artist about it and I've seen just videos and stills of it. And it's, it, from what I understand is just the audio in the space. So it's very interesting because you, it's, and I don't know if you're familiar with this old movie from Nicole Kidman. It's called The Others, if I'm not mistaken. No, I've not come across that. So it's this movie where she moves into a house and she thinks that this house is haunted and they're haunting their family. And at the end of the movie, and I'm going to spoil it for people that haven't seen it, she realizes that it's, in fact, her, the one that's the ghost. And she's the one haunting the new people in the house. So it's this very kind of shift in perspective where the in this art piece you are a little bit of the ghost in these people's conversation but you're actually embodied while you're just listening to the com- to the, to the couple have a conversation so it's very it's a very interesting like out of body experience while you're in your body it's an intriguing idea and it, it makes me wonder as well the degree to which the people who are going into that and participating in the installation whether or not they have been made aware that it's their actions which are going to influence the outcome of what they hear, or whether that's something which just slowly becomes apparent to them, that they start to make the connection that the, I'm presuming there's there must be some sort of network of digital sensors there which are able to sense, you know, did they pick up that plate or did they move the cutlery to this place? And that then they start to to kind of make that association that actually it's the things that they're doing, the way that they're behaving that's influencing the story that they're hearing. Yeah, it's, I think it's the latter where as you navigate through the space and listen to this to these conversations, you realize that it's your actions, the ones that are driving the things. And there's a, bits and pieces where, 
you know, if you pick up a, a glass or if you pick up a place or you put it down, this, the conversation will stop and the woman, woman will say like, oh my God, did you hear that? And then you'll hear the couple getting freaked out because they hear the noises that you're making. And it's, it's a very fun experience to just kind of, I mean, you can completely choose to like mess with them and start doing all these things and then freak them out. And I think there's one uh, kind of one path where they just freak out and they run away. Or you can just be very passive about it and just listen to it and see kind of where what happens and, and what it does. So the level of involvement that you have that you have really kind of just drives that narrative, which I think is what makes this piece really strong is that audience interaction with it. Well, there's a subtlety to it, I think, which is rather interesting. That It sort of hints at that idea now that many of the things that we can experience through digital if you go back even a relatively short period of time, would have been things that people would only have been able to associate with magic or the supernatural. You know, we're living in an age where these experiences that we so quickly have come to take for granted previously would have been things that would have just seemed out of this world to people. And being able to kind of play with that in that very domestic setting of just sitting at a dinner table and yet starting to have these slightly unusual, you know, paranormal things going on must be a, a really interesting experience. How did you come across this project? Um, uh, while I was doing research for my grad school thesis, and I was lucky enough that the artist came into my school to give a talk about just her work and who she is. So I got to, I had seen her work before, and then I actually got to kind of sit in and and hear hear her talk about this and talk to her about it and it was great it was just I think a little bit of similar interest and lucky to to be in the right place at the right time yeah sometimes that's the way with these things you pick up these little strands and threads along the way and then they start to weave together to something in in your own future uh, well, I suppose I ought to, to reciprocate given that, that you've started off with our, our show and tell and what I came across for, for this show was something called the Sony Xperia Touch. I don't know if you've seen this at all. I haven't, but I've heard of it, and it sounds really, really interesting. Yeah, it, it caught my imagination, certainly, for the simple reason that really throughout the history of digital experiences they've almost always been tied to that relationship between the physical size of the display and the physical size of the overall digital device. You know, that's been kind of the unbreakable relationship. And at first that meant that we had these big, heavy CRT monitors that tethered our digital experiences to desks. And even now, when you think about smartphones, you know, the, the smartphone range is now kind of delineated around the size of the screen. You, know, you get the iPhone and the iPhone Plus and the Galaxy S8 and the S8 Plus. And it, it's all about mm. you know buying on the basis of, do you want the, the bigger display? But the Sony Xperia Touch is what's called an ultra short throw projector. And it's kind of a, a tabletop size device, you know, very portable, which can throw a 23 inch projected touchscreen onto pretty much any flat surface. So some of the typical use cases that they're showing it for are on the kitchen counter or yeah, doing this uh, on your desk at work or on a coffee table. And that 23 inch projected screen is touchable and it's running a standard Android OS. You can run all of the kind of Android apps that you're used to um, on your smartphone, but you're able to do it on this much larger projected surface. And one of the examples which really caught my interest with this was this being used in the kitchen. I mean, I'm someone who likes to cook and you always come up against that problem of you're in the middle of producing a recipe and you've got your hands covered in food and you need to look at that crucial next ingredient and 
you've got the choice of do I cover my smartphone in all of the baking mixture that I've got in my hands or you know do you uh, have to you know take a pause and interrupt the, the flow of your cooking so something like this where you could have it projected onto the, the kitchen counter uh, I just thought was a, a really interesting example of how that relationship might be broken and potentially open up a, a whole range of new digital experiences yeah I agree I think the the beauty of this projector is exactly what you're saying which is kind of breaking free from the confines of the screen and now anything can be kind of your display it could be the surface of your kitchen counter it can be the wall it could be the backseat of your car like anything you want it to be and I think that is opening up it's very interesting to see just technology slowly break down the the boundaries it's set for itself and just break free from all the things that kind of started it off and and see the evolution of it and i think this especially with projectors which are you know they're big and they're bulky and they're expensive and they're just complicated and to see something to just be able to put it on your counter and have it work i think it it's a testament to how far technology has come absolutely uh, and I think that notion of, of breaking down the barriers, you know, getting to a point where the technology is no longer something that you carry with you as a physical object, but actually it's something which potentially can start to diffuse into the environment around you, whether that's projected onto a wall or a coffee table or just having something sort of floating in space. Um, I, I guess, you know, a little bit like uh, that this surface tensions project that you mentioned alludes to the idea that you can be in a sort of digitally controlled space and that actually it's something which can envelop you rather than just something that you you look at or you hold in your hand. Uh, now, what was the, the second thing that you found for the show and tell? It's not often that we get a, an extra bonus, so I'm excited to, to hear what you found for this one. Oh, man, and I have another one for you. Too. I have three, but I'll, I'll stick to the second one. Uh, so the second one is called the Argus Project. And the Argus Project is a wearable sculpture and video installation on basically counter surveillance. And it's a little bit of a public cry at least in the States, about just police brutality and just the, the management of force and holding the establishments of higher power accountable of their, of their actions towards civilians. So um, it's this giant body armor that it, it takes its names out of this Greek myth of a giant that had a hundred eyes that could see everything. So you have all these eyes placed along the armor that are that are cameras and they can see. So you basically and there's a screen on it, so you basically can see the feed of what the sculpture is seeing in the 360 view of you know the back, the front, the legs, the elbows, the shoulders, all of it. And it's a little bit of um, it, it's the it's the act of bearing witness to the actions of the state, as they say it, um, and just kind of holding people accountable and, and and artists taking a stand and saying, you know, we see you and we see what you're doing and and know that your actions aren't going, um, they're not silent and we're noticing. It, it's a very powerful visual statement. I mean, I will include a link to all of these mentions within the show notes so that the listeners can go and check them out for themselves. But when I, I saw this come up on the screen, I mean, it's a very striking visual image. As you say, it is, it's a modern day suit of armor and it projects that notion that it's something which protects that the wearer as well as very visibly showing that that wearer is recording and watching those who might seek to control them or that they might feel that they, they need protection from. I wonder about how that combination of those two things, you know, the sense that we have this physical armor look to it, but actually, potentially, it's the fact that the people who might be oppressing that particular individual know that they are being watched and recorded is maybe the more powerful form of protection here rather than the, the armor itself. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the armor is more of um of a statement of saying the you know police where you know when it when it's protests or or any sort of 
kind of congregation of people, police usually are the ones wearing the armors, but they're the ones that are exerting the force. So I think this armor in particular was created to say, okay, well, what can, like, there's no armor for civilians to protect themselves from the police in, and from the actions that they're doing that aren't always the right ones. So I think the armor itself is that statement, but you're absolutely right. The, I think the, the kind of stick in the ground and what really makes this piece special is the fact that it's all these eyes and letting, and letting the government know we're watching you and, and what you, just how you're watching us, we're also watching you. It's a little bit of, of taking back the power that has been stripped from citizens. Now, my understanding from looking at the, the website about this uh, is that it's very much an art project at the moment, but it's one which seems to have elements of, of real functionality in it too. Uh, how important do you think that is in terms of the way digital can actually make a statement like that, that it, that it has that capability to, to function and show people an example of what might be possible. I mean, this obviously is not something that you can go out and buy today, but they have got it at least to the level where people can see it as kind of a, a working prototype or a working concept, at least. Do, do you feel that that's an important part of, of how digital can influence that conversation? I think it's exactly what it what it is for and it's to start that conversation and i think i think that's what art has done since the beginning of time it's always been a way for people to express themselves and start conversations and i think we're lucky now to have all these new digital tools are, are at our disposal where the possibilities of creating pieces that before you couldn't do are now at your fingertips and it's, you know, it's the same thing with, with, you know, a very simple example, like Pokemon Go, where it blew up last year. But I think what it did was also show people the possibility of what technology is and how it can be used for, you know, an app for a company, but also like to do all these other things. And it's through, I think it's through art projects that people do those explorations that eventually lead to breakthroughs in anything and everything. So yes, to your point, it's not necessarily wearable and something I can, I can just kind of put on and walk out. But I think it's, it starts the conversation and it gets people thinking to ideally develop this or develop new projects that will eventually lead to something that is actually, um, viable for the public yeah it's it's a brave new world i think both of these examples that you've cited you know they hint at something that we we know is coming but maybe is still at the moment at least in the tangible sense in the realm of some of these more experimental and, and art project areas that this idea that that digital is something that's starting to break outside its traditional frame of, of being enclosed within a screen and it's now something which can unfold in one form or another in the physical environment, you know, be that, uh, this suit of armor where people, um, can show that they are, they are watching and recording and that they're aware or the, the, the dinner party installation, which you, you cited as well. I think it's that idea that, that digital is becoming very much woven into the, the fabric of life. But I mean, that was in some ways the uh, initial impetus for, for us getting in touch, although we were at the opposite end of the spectrum there and, and thinking about, the role of, of digital in death, um, which is, I guess, an, an equally provocative and, and sometimes difficult subject as something like surveillance and, and police brutality. You know, it, it's right out there at the extremes of emotions people experience in relation to this. But you have created this this project, which was what caused us to get in touch um, when we die with your collaborators where you're using digital to, to address exactly that. Now, for, for the listeners who uh, haven't had a chance to look at the show notes yet and see the, the link to the information about the project, could you just describe for people what it was you were seeking to do with the, the, the When We Die project? When We Die was created with the help of, or with the intention to help participants broach one of the most difficult and still taboo topics in Western culture, which is the end of life. And we wanted to create a space, a safe space for 
hard discussions. And we felt that death, even though it's a fundamental part of the human experience, we really rarely reflect on it on our daily lives until the unthinkable happens, which is you or someone you know passes and then you have to think about this giant topic and you have to deal with it not only in the emotional sense, but in the financial sense and the legal sense and all the snowball of things that happen when somebody dies. And it's something that, you know, people say all the time, there's two things in life that you can't escape, which is death and taxes. And yet we never talk about death. And it's never a topic that is addressed. And I think especially in Western cultures, it's age and dying, aging and dying are subjects that are, you know, kept behind closed doors. People don't really like to talk about it and address them. And then it becomes a vicious cycle because nobody talks about it. Then the conversations become harder. And because the conversation becomes harder, nobody talks about them. So what were the particular technologies that you ended up choosing to to manifest this desire to to address that conversation and give people, as you say, that, that safe space where they could start to explore the issue? So we decided to do this project in virtual reality. And the reason why we decided to do it is because we felt that VR as a whole, and right now as it stands, it's a very solitary experience. You might be in a room full of people with headset on, but you're still, it's only you with that headset. It's your vision being blocked and it's your individual experience, regardless of how many people are around you. So we felt that coupled really nicely with just the idea that death is also a very solitary experience. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to be surrounded by the people you love in the time that, you know, at the end of life, you still go through that alone. So we felt it was a nice parallel in the technology to use it as a way to kind of put people and settle them into the the thought of the end of life and kind of make them comfortable in that discomfort if that makes sense no was vr something that you had an interest in prior to this project not necessarily so um i like to i call myself a vr skeptic and actually me and the and the co-creators we all kind of um steer away from vr a bit and while we were discussing the the topic of death and what we wanted to do for the project and how we wanted to address it, we kept coming back to VR because it just seemed to fit really well with the with the intent of our project. And I think the reason why I'm a little bit skeptical on the VR front is because I feel a lot of projects are a little bit self-indulgent, which basically is just doing something in VR for VR's sake, but it doesn't really add to the experience in a way that, you know, it it could have only been done in VR. I've seen a lot of projects where you're like, okay, great, you did this in a, in a virtual reality world, but it could have worked just fine or even better if you would have taken it out and done it as a digital, you know, as a web experience or AR or mixed reality. Um, so I think that for us was it was an interesting, it was an interesting pivot in the project because we fought it for a little bit even, and then it just made sense to do it in VR. Well, that was one of the interesting characteristics which caught my attention about the project in the first place and then when we subsequently spoke a little about it because as you say there is that that notion of perhaps a bit of indulgence at the moment around virtual reality because it's such a a new thing and yet you were coming at it from the opposite direction and I suppose it sort of speaks to the idea of uh, the extent to which you must have tried to get into the minds of the potential users of this and understand how you could create that feeling of the safe place. But that's that's a very challenging 
error at the moment, I guess, for a couple of reasons. One, because of the the slightly taboo nature of the subject, which this is addressing, but also the novelty of virtual reality uh, as an environment. It, it must make it very challenging to do the kind of uh, user research to, to get into the minds of, of the potential users of this that you might have done if you were using maybe a more traditional or established technology. Definitely, yes. But I think... I think maybe that's also one of the good things about VR being so new is the fact that you have this license to experiment and try these things before, you know, the quote unquote best practices get put into place and then everybody's supposed to follow these guidelines. So I think it was it was interesting to do so. Um, and we really tried to leverage the power of VR where you're creating in, you know, entirely new worlds. So we we wanted to create something that was familiar to people, but still different that you wouldn't necessarily be able to to get anywhere else. And how does that feel for users? You know, when you when they first put on that headset and that they've almost, I guess, entered into a bit of a a, a creative contract with you to. To, to go into this experience, something which they may feel a sense of trepidation about because of the subject matter. What's the first thing that they experience once you start what you've created for them? That is a good question. I think the first thing that they experience is awe, maybe, or wonder. And I think it's because we... So the, the experience is divided into two parts. The first one is it's set in this a little bit of a field scene where, you know, you're it's there's grass and there's these trees and there's this one main tree that you're looking at. And you kind of go through the cycle of it, like having its leaves and loosening its leaves. So that's something that people are really familiar with. But we decided to kind of um, get inspired by Richard Moss's infrared imagery. If you look at it, it's all in these like reds, pinks, blacks, black tones. So that looks very, very different. So there's this really interesting mix of reactions of people kind of knowing where they are, but realizing that this is a different space. And then they get taken through this meditation about, you know, mortality and dying and kind of getting them in the headspace of this is something we all go through and this is something that we're going to address. So... In the beginning, I think they, it's this giddy excitement about, about, you know, this, this quirky world and, and these, this interesting space. And then as the meditation happens, you kind of see people just kind of settle in to the experience and really start internalizing it. So it's a very nice, it's a very nice and interesting shift. And we've had people, um, we recently demoed this project at the Harvard Divinity School, and I think we got really nice reactions from people that on average think about this more than a regular person would, I would say. What was the reaction that surprised you most when you did that demo at at Harvard? There was one particular guy who was just excited the whole way through. And he kept, you know, ooing and eyeing and having all these really like visceral reactions in a good way. And after he was done with the experience, it was just very, he came up to us and he was, he was just raving about how now he could see all the possibilities and how we could like break down all these walls and in how his work and in, in the possibilities of what they did, how technology could just kind of come into it and, and just expand it in a way that he hadn't thought about before, which is it part of the reason why we did this so it was really it was a really nice moment to have that and to have somebody see it um that actually works with the topic and in the space um that we created this so just going back to the those design decisions that that are creating that sort of reaction among some of the users i think it's really interesting that you chose that sort of otherworldly approach that it's it's familiar and yet there are things within the color scheme or the way in which that's presented which are deliberately there to take it a little bit out of the the day-to-day reality uh, and give it that that slight sense of you know being a a little bit different a little bit separate from from the day-to-day world was there something in the research that you did for this or that the people that you talked to that that guided you towards that particular approach 
I think from the when we first started prototyping this and, and we kind of showed it to people, there was this because VR is so new, some of the technology and some of the way things render and the and the way things look are just not there. And I think the the best comparison I can have is video games, right? Where it's you know Atari and in Nintendo, you know Super Nintendo and Nintendo sixty four to you know the PS four and the and the games we have now, where the graphics and the way things looked, you know, from then until now, it, it's amazing what technology has done. And I feel VR is right now in the stage where Atari used to be when it came out, where you you have all these assets and you have all these all these 3D things, but they still don't look quite, quite right. And I think it was a very conscious decision for us to kind of steer away from trying to make it look 100% realistic because we knew we weren't going to, we weren't going to be able to do it. So we wanted to also leverage that part of VR of saying we have license to create a whole new world of whatever it is that we want to do. Why try to keep it tethered to what people know, but instead really take them out and put them in a space where if we're already making them think about something they don't necessarily think about often, why not put them in a space where they don't find themselves often? And it was that it was pairing the the visuals that, that are both different and maybe a little bit jarring and soothing with the audio and with the topic that starts a little bit jarring and hopefully becomes soothing by the end of the experience. Now, beyond the, the technology and the, the design aspects of it, I mean, who does one go to to, to research something like this and, and to, to talk to people about what the experience should be like and how it should address it? Because as you say, it's a difficult subject to broach with people. I mean, how, how did you go about doing that? How did you go about finding the input that you needed for yeah, what the overall experience should be like and the, the, the commentary and the meditation, which is a big part of the overall experience that you've created. I was lucky enough to work. So Leslie, uh, which is one of the co-creators of this project, um, has worked in, she's she's a product designer and has worked in the healthcare industry for a while. And Dana, which is the other um, woman I worked with, she has, her background is in biology and she had worked with, the two experts we ended up interviewing. Uh, one is Dr. Gayatri Devi, and the other one is uh, Stephanie Hope. And Dr. Gayatri Devi is a neurologist that works in degenerative diseases, and Stephanie Hope is an end-of-life hospice nurse. So we we were lucky enough to to have these two contacts very close to us, where we were able to just kind of go and and start those conversations and see how they have seen it uh, from their point of view, both personally and professionally. And I think especially with Dr. Devi, she's from India. So she approaches the subject very, in a very interesting way where she was born and raised in India, but then she did her medical degree and her medical practice here in the States. She was very animate about speaking about the differences between Eastern and Western cultures and how in India, you know, if somebody died, she would just go to their house and kind of be surrounded by it. And here we just kind of don't don't talk about it and feel that like death is contagious and, a, and a, you know, it just it, you have to keep it very contained. So we were lucky to be able to to have these two women to talk to and to kind of see their point of points of view and interview them and eventually put their interviews in the second part of the experience. Um, so once you move away from that first part of the meditation and with the, with the tree in the field, you are then placed into just a completely abstract world where you have these shapes floating around in the space. And as you look at them, you trigger different audio stories from both Dr. Debbie and Stephanie Hope. And you can hear their stories, which are very powerful. And have they had a chance to try this experience now that you, you've gone off and created it off the, the back of some of those ideas which came from the research with them? Have they had a chance to try it for themselves? They have, yes. And they they were both very, very pleased, which I think was was something very rewarding for us because we, we wanted to make sure we did them justice, we did their stories justice, 
And it was a very, very nice moment to have them both try it last winter and enjoy it and and have a really, really positive experience with the with the with the project. So the project has been quite widely covered now in digital media, I, I know. And um, I'm wondering what comes next with it. You've obviously had a chance to show it to various different groups and, and see some of those reactions. But do you have next steps planned for where it might go? Yes. So we are in the process of applying to several grants. Um, we really want to expand this project. I think we we all feel it addresses an important subject um, that might actually enrich people's lives if if you know done right and, and given the opportunity to actually talk about it. Um, so we're applying to a couple of grants, hopefully so that we can continue expanding it. And we're also working on a third part of it, which will hopefully, there's two ways or two routes that we can take this project. One is just on the individual basis of creating this, you know, for you and your family and your loved ones to ideally make that conversation easier. And whether it's, you know, you talking to your parents about it because they won't or your parents talking to you about it, um, just kind of allowing for an easier way to approach that conversation. And then the second part is really just on medical training and which was something that came out of our research with Dr. Devi, which is, you know, doctors here and in most of the world, you know, they're, they're taught that their main thing is to keep a patient alive. But at some point, the the thought and the conversation about quality of life needs to come in and people need to start making decisions based on that versus I'm going to keep you alive, but is this really what you wanted? And what type of life am I giving you if I keep you alive? So it's really just kind of training medical professionals in that uh, in both just having the conversation about the end of life with their patients and really just internalizing the way that maybe allowing a patient to die doesn't necessarily mean that they have failed as a professional, which I think is something that it's a big gap that still needs to be covered in the in the profession. Well, and as you say, conversations which are at many levels, whether it's with family or with, with medical professionals, uh, are often challenging ones to have. And mm-hmm. that sense of being able to do it within a safe space, I think, is, is a fascinating part of this. Um, I wonder whether once you have that ability or you, you've learned that skill, if you like, to be able to create that sense of a safe space around this topic, do you feel like that's something that you could abstract from that and apply to other challenging issues as well? Because yeah, clearly death is a taboo subject in some cultures, but there are many other taboo subjects which we struggle to talk about with people uh, around us. Uh, do, do you think this is something where you you could apply the learnings from this project to new areas or where you'd have the desire to apply um, the, these learnings to, to new areas? Oh, absolutely. When the project actually started, we were thinking about doing it around uh, sexual education and just really kind of addressing that subject. And it was only through a personal experience of a close friend of mine that died that we kind of just shifted and started talking about death. So I definitely think that this is, this, you know, you can decontextualize it outside of death and, and, and use it to have any and all type of conversations and really just address those subjects that maybe would be a little bit harder to do um, or or give it a new life in a sense that it can create it can create those that discussion around it that maybe people feel uncomfortable having before so, so what do you feel are the, the key elements then to that to creating that sense of the safe space in virtual reality in the the digital environment i mean so, sometimes i often find it's helpful these things to sort of work backwards and start removing elements one by one and thinking about, well, at what point is it no longer a safe space? Like if, for instance, we were to do this without the otherworldly aspect, or if we were to do it without the 
the commentary or if we were to do this not in virtual reality but just on a, a touchscreen for instance you know, do, do you feel there are certain things that you can put your finger on as, as design principles or elements of that experience which are essential uh, for it to feel like a safe space for people yeah i think the the biggest thing at least for this project and what we try to do was it's especially with with hard conversations it's very important not to come off as judgmental and, and pointing fingers and telling people what to do. So we wanted to really step away from that and not create an experience that was going to be like, well, now you need to go and like sit down with your loved ones and have this conversation. And if you're not doing it, shame on you, because I think that's where you lose that safe space. So it's it's a little bit, I guess, like therapy where you you can just go into the room and, and just kind of talk about whatever it is that you're going to talk about and know that that you're not being judged. And I think it was very, very important for us to keep the tone in a way that this was your experience and you could make of it what you wanted. And maybe it was, you know, resonated more strongly with some people than uh, than other people, but we wanted to just kind of keep it very respectful and and very and we were we tried our hardest to be very tactful about the way that the meditation is recorded and um about the way that the stories come across and and just making it either from the personal point of view of the two experts that we interviewed or just a generic meditation that just kind of puts you in that space so i think for safe at least when it comes to creating a safe space that was the biggest design principle for us, which was keeping it non-judgmental. Yeah, that makes total sense. I can see how having that sort of that that freedom, that license to explore without the sense of being judged would be crucial to this. Usually with VR you can see you can see kind of what people are looking at. And we in people sometimes feel very self conscious because they know they're being watched and they can't they can't see the people that are watching them. So we also try to keep the experience very private where the computer and the display was kind of turned away from the audience so that, you know, if they came around to look, they could, but it wasn't something that it was just completely exposed to everybody that was walking around so that it, that gave license to people to really explore and really just kind of, if they wanted to just sit there and look at one thing, they could. If they wanted to look around or move around, they could. And I think that also aids with the experience of of the safe space. Because um, I think VR, and that's also something that came out of user research, is is something that makes people feel very, very vulnerable. And a lot of people are very uncomfortable with putting on the headset and knowing that they're being watched and knowing that they have this whole crowd around them. And that really makes them not entirely given to the experience that they're in sometimes. Yeah, I think that's one of the emerging subtleties of, of virtual reality as a design challenge is that relationship between the the user, you know, the, the end user in the moment who is actually within that, the virtual space themselves and wearing the, the headset and the people who are around them, both in the sense of it making the people who are around them sometimes feel uncomfortable and also the person themselves that they're being observed while they're doing these things. There's a, a little bit of a tension between that relationship, which I suppose works out in different ways depending on the personalities of the particular users involved. Definitely, yeah. So I think creating a, a purposefully creating a VR place that's supposed to be a safe space definitely was, that was definitely a design challenge that was interesting too to kind of partake in. And what's this project meant for you as a designer and, and someone who obviously has an interest in digital for want of a, a better term and the way all these different things are advancing? Now that you've had a chance to try it with these different groups and reflect a bit on that, has it changed your views as to, to where you want to go with your design practice in the future or particular technologies that you might be interested in, in trying out? It definitely changed my point of view on VR, I will say. I, I Well, before I thought it was, you know, maybe even a little bit gimmicky and, and I didn't really see the power of it. I now can truly see the potential and I think it, if used right, it can really make a difference. I also think that this project for me 
it's it's a very special project because I feel it it's adding something good to the world, which I think is important. I don't I struggle sometimes with with the thought of just kind of doing work for you know for clients or brands and just trying to sell products, but not really bring enriching people's lives in any way. And I I think me and Dana and Leslie we all feel that this project can actually, even if it's helping one person have, you know, the conversation about the end of life with, with their loved ones that they wouldn't have had before. I think that's what makes it worth it, that it feels we're actually bringing into, into people's lives something that has meaning. And I find that very important in my work. And I, and I find that very important to just stay motivated in life is to to feel that what you're making has purpose. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, can you remember a, a time or a particular product or, or technology where you felt those two things sort of first united for you, going back in, in kind of your own digital history, I suppose? Because I think that's a really important point that these often end up being very associated with uh, sort of consumerist or, or indulgent experiences. Um, and yet clearly at some point for you, that those two notions of, of an interest in technology and uh, an interest in doing something which actually has meaning and contributes to the world, united. Was it specifically around this project that that happened for the first time? Or are there things that you can remember in the past where you felt like technology was starting to align with those those aspirations that you had to, to do something meaningful with your talents? I think it really materialized for me in this particular project, but I think the 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 nugget, I think, or the seed was planted um, a couple of years ago when I was living in Chicago and I was working with this pro bono client. I used to work in advertising and it was for this organization called the Care Project and it's all about... Um, reinserting troubled adults into you know the real world so after people get out of jail or, or people that are homeless like how can you reinsert them back into society in a way that they'll be an actual um that they'll that they'll be able to give something back to the community and stay and stay and be an active part of society, I guess, instead of having people come in and out of jail or, you know, or um, prostitution or addiction, which were all part of it. And I think it was while working with them and seeing the work that they did that I, that I really started to realize that doing work with purpose mattered to me more than I thought that I had thought before. So it has been through that and through the work of the last couple of years that I've kind of tried to get closer and closer to it. And I think with this particular project, it's a really nice kind of stake on the ground of, of finally being able to do a project that matters. Now, you've been involved with the ITP program at, at NYU, and I believe that was where When We Would Die was was created, was under the, the, the auspices of, of that program. Yes. What role has, has ITP played in that for you in, in the way that environment has influenced the work that you've done? Oh, ITP has been a wonderful environment for me. I think it's what I love the most about the program is not only the diverse group of people that you are put in contact with and diverse in backgrounds and diverse in ethnicity and diverse in ways of thinking that really just brings into your own personal life all these new perspectives and all these new things that I just was not exposed to before. But it also is a very, very fostering environment when it comes to creativity. And people are very supportive. And every and usually, you know, some grad schools, it's kind of like dog eat dog, and everybody's just kind of trying to one up each other. And ITP is really like a family and everybody's really supportive and everybody helps and if you need if you're trying to do something that you don't know how to do and somebody knows how to do it they'll sit down with you and they'll teach you or they'll give you references and um so I think it, it really was a, a very you know pun intended it was a very safe space to try and create this project and and have it come to fruition you know 
in in a way that it was okay to be vulnerable and make those initial mistakes in the beginning because we knew the feedback that we were getting and the and the testing that we were getting was was real and was meaningful and we were getting steered in the right directions by everybody that was there. Where do you think that comes from with ITP? Because that's something which I hear consistently about the program. And I guess I first came across it probably in the late 90s when I was in New York for a visit and went and spent a bit of time talking to people who are involved with the, the program back then. But um, where do you think that that culture of, of nurturing and creative experimentation flows from? Is it, is it the history of, of ITP because it, it, it's been one of, I guess, the, the longest established programs in this area? Or is it the, to do with the location, the, the diversity of the people involved? It's, I'm, I'm curious if you can put your finger on, on what makes it a little bit special like that. I think it's, I think it definitely comes from when it was found. Fa- it was founded by Red Burns. You know, who she was known as the godmother of Silicon Valley. So she was really a pioneer in the technology industry, especially as a woman. And I think it was through her her love of experimentation and just kind of um, camaraderie that that has really, they really try to embody that. And when you come in, you get this book with quotes from Red Burns and and they really kind of try and keep that legacy alive. And I also think that the staff and the faculty are really very good at being there for support, but really letting the people in the program make the program what it is. And it's very interesting because it's a two-year program. So, you know, the first year you're kind of the new people coming in. And then the second year you kind of see this new batch of people come in. And the way dynamics shift and the way, you know, people just kind of come in and they start making ITP their home. And we have license to make and do and create and and disintegrate whatever it is that we do. If you want to, you know, make something about sustainability and you want to get a bunch of people involved, you can. And you can always find a faculty member that's going to support you. And if there's nobody that has those skills, they'll still support you anyway. So I think it's really is the Redburn's legacy and it's the license of students having that agency to to make the program what it is instead of coming into something that's very rigid and very regimented and and having all these guidelines and all these rules that you need to follow. It's instead a very fluid program and it's the personalities that kind of shape it what it is. So people become really, really attached and they become really invested in the program and the people in the program because of that reason, I think. Well, I think it's a wonderful thing that we have these spaces where that kind of creative experimentation and particularly where digital can be used to address some of these these challenging issues can happen. And, and we've Absolutely. got these, these places where, where that's going on. I think that's a really positive thing and, and wonderful to think that, you know, the work that you and your co-creators on this have done will will add to that long and, and rich history at ITP. It's a really nice contribution to have made. Um, but I guess that the program eventually will, will come to an end for you. you know, as you say, it's a, a two-year thing. Have you given thought to what might be an ideal next step after ITP? Yeah. So ideally, we we would love to continue to develop this project. And I think that's where the, the grant applications are coming in to just kind of um, – have the space and, and have the funds to do so. Um, but I also think that I'm interested in going back into the workforce with this new set of skills that I've gained and really, really focus on experience design. I think that's really where I found my love for, for, for digital specifically. It's, it's that seamless integration into life that we were talking about in the beginning uh, with all these projects that um, we kind of started the conversation off with, and it's really through that seamless fusion of it that I that digital is really pushing the boundaries, and I'm really interested to go into a space um, or a group that that keeps that in mind and really pushes the envelope when it comes to merging the digital and the physical and creating these experiences that people that people weren't expecting and were lucky enough that this is all really new to something you said in the beginning too, where this all, this still all feels very fantastical and, and a little bit like magic. 
Um, and creating that sense of wonder is something that I really, really enjoy and really cherish. Well, having seen what you've achieved with this project, uh, I'm sure you'll um, have every success in it. And I do hope you'll stay in touch and perhaps come back on the, the show in the future and tell us how it's all gone. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Mary. This was uh, really a pleasure. And that's it for this edition of Mech's Design Talk. Before we finish, a couple of reminders. If you're looking to hire and would like to be part of that Mech's Jobs Beta, drop me an email, designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com, and I can see about arranging an invite for you. We're already live with the, the Jobs Board, uh, and this is a chance to be involved as a founding member of that. If you want to find out more about anything Paula and I talked about in the show, there are detailed show notes, as ever, in the podcast section at mobileuserexperience.com with links to everything we discussed. Finally, thanks to everyone who has been sharing the show and spreading the word on social media. The audience is growing every day, and we love welcoming new listeners. Uh, You can help others discover it, by sending them the link to mobileuserexperience.com, where there's the archive of all of the previous shows, uh, or just tell them to search for Mech's Design Talk on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, pretty much anywhere you find good podcasts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>